Uh, and, you know, with lockdown, there's uh, probably a lot more free time, right, for all of us to do things that we perhaps don't normally do as much. Um, I know, uh, you know, some of you I've heard have been going out for walks. Um, it's kind of like the limited outdoor activity that we can really enjoy right now. I'm sure many of you have been uh, just enjoying watching more shows and just, you know, getting into TV a little bit more. I, I know my wife and I have been uh, enjoying uh, just watching some shows as of late. Uh, but I hope you haven't been binge-watching anything. <laughs> uh, I think it's you know, good to do everything in moderation. And there's an interesting show. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard of it before. It's called The Good Place. Right? The Good Place. It's been out for a few years. And without giving too much away, the basic uh, premise, the basic idea of the show is that the main characters have all died and they've arrived in this wonderful utopia called The Good Place. And they've arrived there because it's a reward for how well they've lived their lives, right? for all the good things that they've done in life. And it's literally been tracked for them on a point system. And that's how they've come to this good place. In the very first episode, uh, the main character, Eleanor Shellstrop, she's played by Kristen Bell, she arrives at this uh, utopia, at this good place, and she meets the guy in charge, a guy named Michael. And she just has to ask him, like, who was right? Like, which religion was right? Who got it right? And he responds, well, the Hindus were a little bit right. Uh, the Muslims were a little bit right. The Jews and the Christians, uh, the Buddhists, they, they all uh, guessed you know, around 5%. And, you know, this is a kind of lighthearted comedy TV series, but it's, it's really asking quite a deep question at the heart of it. And it's a question I'm sure... Many of us have contemplated before because it's, it's a question really that the whole of humanity has pondered from the beginning of time, right, for millennia. And the question is, what does it mean to be good? Right, what does it mean to be good? Right, throughout all of human history, this question of human goodness, it's been asked and it's been answered in so many different ways. I think every different religion, every different Philosophy has had an answer for this question. And, you know, even if you don't subscribe to a particular religion or philosophy, the way that you live your life according to certain ideals and certain values, that is an answer to this question of what does it mean to be good? And that's the question that really drives today's passage. What does it mean to be good? Or to use the language of the Bible, what does it mean to be righteous? Last week, uh, we came back into our series on the book of Matthew. And we're in this amazing section called the Sermon on the Mount. It's this this just great monologue that Jesus gives uh, to his disciples and to people who gather around him. And he starts off the Sermon on the Mount by telling us about what the blessed life is. What is the the blessed life? And last week we saw that it's really a life of disruption. It's an upside-down life. It's a life of distinctiveness, of being salt and light. It's a life that Jesus himself lived for the glory of God. And it's a life that we're to follow in his footsteps as citizens of the kingdom. 
And today we'll see that the blessed life is also the righteous life. Right? It's a life of goodness and, and righteousness, a life in which the citizens of this kingdom were actually called to live by a standard, right? a standard that reflects the goodness and righteousness of the king. So as we move from the Beatitudes that we looked at last week, we'll see what Jesus has to say about the righteous life. Jesus' answer to this question, what does it mean to be good? Or what does it mean to be righteous? And the first thing that Jesus tells us as we look at this passage is that being good, it means that you have a high view of the law. It means that you have a high view of the law. And I'm sure for some of you, uh, you hear that immediately and it doesn't sound very good. You don't want to hear that. Uh, The word law, it brings to mind uh, religion and rigidity, like rules and, and punishment. This is what Jesus says. I'm just going to read verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the, in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So first Jesus says very straight up, I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. And he says, not even an iota. And he's referring there to a Greek letter or a Hebrew alphabet called the Yod. And it's literally like, you think of the letter T. Maybe not even the letter T, the letter I. You know, the, the dot on top of that letter I. That's what he's talking about. Not even a speck of the law have I come to do away with. And Jesus is talking about not just the law here, but the prophets, right? So he's talking about the Old Testament in its entirety. All right, the Torah, the Ten Commandments, the prophets... And he's really saying, I haven't come to to loosen up any of that. That's not what I'm about. That's not what the kingdom is about. And maybe you have this question in your head. Oh, wait a second, Jesus. How can you say that? How can you say that so dramatically about the Old Testament? Because I'm pretty sure, like, you know, we don't come to church now and sacrifice pigeons and goats and bulls. You know, we don't follow specific food laws. Uh, I think many of us eat shellfish. Uh, not all of us, but, but many of us. Uh, you know, Mark chapter 7 declares, Jesus made all foods clean. Acts 10 says, you don't need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You know, the book of Hebrews, the, the whole book, it talks about the structure of the temple, the priests and the sacrifices, the Old Testament laws. All of that is really just pointing to Christ's death. So how can you say, Jesus, that you haven't set anything aside from the Old Testament? seems like you've set a lot of it aside. Don't many of us have that question in our faith? I don't think we think very deeply about it enough. Like Jesus, we have the gospel now. 
Grace triumphs over the law. That's good news for us lawbreakers. Why are you saying you haven't set even a dot aside from the Old Testament? Well, the answer to that difficult question is in verse 17. Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does it mean when Jesus says fulfill? Because it's a word that it pops up a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, many of you know that I am a uh, MCU fan, that I'm a uh, somewhat of a comic book fan. <laughs> not as much anymore, but I, I used to be. And even if you're not, even if you've only ever seen one Marvel movie before in your lifetime, even if you see a guy called Thanos and, and you call him Purple Hulk, you have to give some credit to this franchise, uh, which has somehow managed, managed to take 20 individual films over the course of 11 years and tie all of them together in this one climactic film at the very end uh, called Endgame. And somehow when you walk out of the cinema and you've seen Endgame, you realize all of these movies were, were leading to this final set piece. And that's what Jesus is telling us when he says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's saying that everything from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, right, from the creation account, all throughout Israel's history, with the exodus and the temple, the sacrifices of God's people rejecting the law, going into exile, coming back, all of it now, it's coming to its great climactic moment in him. It's all making sense in him. See, Jesus fulfills, it means he fills up and he fills out everything in Scripture. And that's why he can say, I'm not setting even an iota of the law aside. He's saying, you need to view the law actually in light of me. I'm not darkening them, I am just making them brighter. Jesus has a very high view of the law. He did not come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. And so being a Christian, right, being someone who follows in the footsteps of Jesus, someone who is a citizen of his kingdom, it actually doesn't mean that you live as if the newness that Jesus brings makes the Old Testament irrelevant. Right? The law, that's, that's so BC. There's only grace now. now. The law is important. The law matters to Jesus. So much so that he says in verse 20, unless your righteousness, right, your keeping of this law, unless that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. It's like he's saying, when it comes to the law, unless you can outdunk Michael Jordan in his prime, unless you can paint better than Rembrandt, unless you can sing better than Brian McKnight, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. That is a high view of the law. But that's what Jesus says, and it's the first part of his answer to the question, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be righteous? 
Well, it means to have a high view of the law. The law matters to Jesus. He didn't come to get rid of it. He didn't come to just supersede it and leave it in the dust. The law matters to Jesus, so it shouldn't matter to us. We recognize that the law is good because it comes from a good God. And so we don't break God's law. We don't sin licentiously. But we treat it with reverence. So that's, that's the first way that Jesus answers this question, uh, you know, this age-old question of what does it mean to be good for us in the text? Have a high view of the law. Uh, which leads me to my second point. You don't only have a high view of the law, but secondly, you have a low view of yourself. Right? Have a high view of the law, but have a low view of yourself. And I want to take us through... Uh, the rest of this passage, and uh, I'm not going to read every part of it, verses 21 to 48. Uh, I, I would recommend that you do that uh, at home, that you study this passage properly, uh, even in your CGs perhaps. But uh, today I just want to highlight some things as we uh, kind of s- take a high view of this passage, because I think it helps sometimes that we're able to see things that we can't see uh, if we were to look too closely, look too introspectively. So we're going to uh, get some distance from this, uh, and what we're going to do is, as I read 21 to 48, you'll notice that Jesus is going to start talking about specific examples of what it means to have a high view of the law, to keep the law. Um, and in each of these examples, he always starts off with, you have heard that it was said, right, where he's referencing the Old Testament law, and then he gives his own take, but I say to you, So I'm going to read those parts of these examples. So let's start. Anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angrier with his brother will be liable to judgment. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 38, bear with me, track with me. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And finally, verse 43. I'm just going to read the rest of this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, 
and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we saw that repeated pattern here, didn't we? You know, Jesus beginning with, you've heard it said, and he quotes the law, and then he gives his own interpretation of that teaching. Heard it said, but I say to you. And what ties these six examples together is this. Each time Jesus gives his own take, he's going deeper beyond behavior, right? beyond righteous behavior, and he's calling us to a greater righteousness. Right? It's a righteousness of the heart. So in each of these cases, there's an external command from God, and that's, it's, it's good. Right? It's a good command. Murdering someone is bad. His external commands are good, but underneath the command, God has always cared about a deeper issue of the internal person, right, the heart. So murder, right? God commanded not to murder. But God cares more about uh, you know, just not murdering people. He doesn't want us to be filled with hate in our hearts, because that really is the fullest expression of murder. Adultery. I think we all know it's wrong to cheat on your wife. And that's not righteous behavior. But recognize that what Jesus is talking about is that adultery, it doesn't actually start between the bedsheets. It starts between your ears. Right? It starts in your mind as you let the idea grow long before it ever happens. Divorce. A divorce is very messy. It's always very complex. And if we think about those in our own lives who have gotten divorced, I'm sure we can attest to that. But Jesus is saying, just because you have a signed certificate of divorce, it doesn't make it right. If you're using a signed certificate of divorce to rebrand your own adultery because you've just gotten bored of your spouse and you've found satisfaction in another woman, or using a certificate of divorce to rebrand your own hatred at your spouse, that's a heart issue. And the next three examples, they highlight a similar thing, right? Oaths. Yeah. Jesus isn't just saying you don't need to uh, swear by your mother's grave. You don't need to swear by the reins of Poseidon. You don't need to make a pinky promise because what people were doing back then was like they'd make all these elaborate oaths right, to make themselves feel a little better about something. And I'm sure you know, you've done that before. I've done that before. Yeah, God, I, I promise you this time I won't do that promise you tomorrow I'll get up early in the morning. Like I swear to you that I'll read my Bible. But then, you know, these people back then, they'd say, you know, my, my mother's still alive. Well, Poseidon isn't real. And Pinky promises are for, they're for kids. Like it doesn't really matter if you make the oath with your mouth if your heart's not in it. 
retaliation. This is uh, this expression, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've probably heard it before. And this was the law in place to limit the rightful uh, kind of compensation or retribution for damages. So if you know, someone stole your chicken, right, you can't just go and chop off their head. That's what this law is for. And Jesus is saying, you know, this law isn't just about, it's, just not, it's not just about limiting damages. It actually comes from a place where God cares about our relationships. It comes from a place where God wants us to care about reconciliation in our relationships. And so Jesus is asking us, where is your heart? Where is your heart when it comes to reconciliation in your relationships? And that kind of really flows on into this final example, loving your enemies. And the idea of loving your neighbor, it comes from uh, the law in Leviticus 19. And Jesus quotes it, uh, but it sounds a bit strange. It sounds a bit weird. He says, uh, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And the reality is that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say love your neighbor and also hate your enemies. So what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting like a popular version of it, a version that's kind of morphed from the law into the same. Uh, and, you know, I think we do that sometimes too. Uh, we take uh, God's law, we take his commandments, and over time we kind of twist it. We, we morph it into something that makes us feel good. But nowhere in the Bible are these two phrases actually paired together. And Jesus is calling us to a radical uh, kind of sense of forgiveness and reconciliation and, and, and peacemaking. And that's the issue of the heart at stake here. And ultimately, Jesus is talking about our goodness, our righteousness, as having to surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes. We read that in verse 20, right? And, you know, the first time you read that, when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You won't ever enter the kingdom of heaven. That sounds really harsh. That sounds really hard. Because if you just read it at first glance, it does sound like he's just talking about doing better, like keeping the law perfectly. And that's what these guys would do. They would keep the law perfectly. These guys were the ones who knew the law like the back of their own hand. These guys were the guys who would tithe, take Sabbath at 5 p.m. on Friday. These were the guys who would contribute a lot and be generous to the community. But these were also the guys who would break the law in their hearts. They would keep the letter of the law, but they would find all these loopholes. Right? You know, they would try to divorce their wives, or they would divorce their wives for burning their toast. I've got a certificate, it's all good. And that's really the problem that Jesus is addressing. It's not, hey, just do better. Just do the law better. Just be more righteous. Be a better person. Stop sinning. But for many of us, like the Pharisees, Jesus is highlighting our tendency to think of righteousness as an external issue without bringing it in internally. I think it's a little bit like how some of us, I won't say all of us, uh, handle car maintenance. 
you know, the fuel's running low, uh, just pretend you can't see. Just keep on, keep on driving. Your car starts to make questionable uh, noises. Just turn off the radio. The check engine light comes on. Uh, just you know, put a bit of tape over it. So when it comes to examining our hearts and really facing our motives, we, we avoid it. And I think it's because just straight up, like it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to face the chaos of what's going on inside our hearts. It's really hard, if we're honest, to face the fear there, right? the shame, the regret, and the pain. And it's so much easier to just keep doing stuff. It's just easier to keep on driving. It's just easier to keep busy with work. It's easier to keep distracting ourselves with things to do, with hobbies. It's easier to even just serve in church. It's easy, it's easy to do anything other than look inside. So Jesus and this whole section of uh, this passage uh, in verse 48. And he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And really, that doesn't make us feel any better. When Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, the only thing it really does is it highlights our imperfection, doesn't it? And that's really the big point of all this. See, we're supposed to realize that no matter how many bad things we avoid doing, no matter how many good things, how many charitable, benevolent things that you might do, if your heart is not right, if your heart isn't pure and humble before the Lord, if your heart isn't seeking reconciliation in your horizontal relationships, if your heart is filled with hatred and lust and anger, then you're actually going in the other direction towards hypocrisy. And it's only a matter of time until one day your external behavior, it catches up to the state of your heart. Jesus is being provocative somewhat when he asks us to be perfect because he knows like, we have no chance. You know, the popular saying is nobody's perfect. It's absolutely true. Nobody's perfect. And we all know it. And so Jesus is pointing to the heart and he's saying, just stop for a moment. Stop driving. Stop filling up your time with doing things. Stop doing good things and avoiding bad things. Stop just you know, even serving in the church. And just look inside. Look inward. And Jesus is saying that because, because God ultimately, he cares so much more about who you are becoming than what you can do for him. God cares so much more about who you're becoming as a person inwardly than whatever it is that you think you're doing for him or can do for him. And if you can see in yourself today that you're, maybe you're someone who does all the right things externally, but you're not someone who takes the time to examine your heart, then I would urge you 
stop delaying it. Just stop what you're doing and take the time to examine your heart. Take the time to look inside. Take the time to, to realize that maybe no matter how good life seems externally, your heart is broken and marred with sinful desires. You know, your heart is very small and it's not considerate of others. Your heart is blackened by, by hurts and, and, and anger, maybe rage. Your heart is continuously restless, maybe, seeking satisfaction in anything and everything else. Take the time to look inside and be broken over the state of your heart. But then fix your eyes on the only person who has kept the law perfectly. You know, the one who fulfilled the law by bringing it to, by bringing it to its climax, its high point. It's in this person where every single law, every single prophetic utterance, every 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 word, every happening from Genesis chapter one, all throughout the Old Testament, to the end of Malachi. Everything makes sense, everything falls into place. When you look at him, when you look at him, you see the one who lived a perfect life. Because he kept God's law perfectly. And he ends up dying a lawbreaker's death so that all other lawbreakers, you and me, would be justified. I would be made righteous before a holy God and receive a brand new clean heart. So Jesus answers this question that we asked at the start, what does it mean to be good? And he says, have a high view of the law, of God's law, but have a low view of yourself. And he's saying, understand that God and his law are perfect. They're not overbearing. They're, they're good. But it's you and I who are not good. It's you and I who have hearts that are broken. Hearts that are small and self-centered and blackened. You know, one of the things I love and hate about preaching is that each time um, I get ready to come up here, I, I really feel the weight of it. I feel the weight of it because I, I, can't, I can't do this without a clear conscience. And I have to face stuff in my relationships. I have to face stuff in my marriage. I have to face my fears and my insecurities and my frustrations. And I have to examine my heart because I know that Jesus' words are, are true. I know that God sees the inside of me and he sees everything. That's where he wants to work. So I, I, I can't just go through the motions uh, and neither can you. Because the kingdom that he invites us into, it's, it's not made up of rule keepers. And if that's what you've been trying to do, and you just feel tired, and you feel just burdened and, and weary and bored, 
that's not what the kingdom is. It's not made up of rule keepers. It's, it's made up of people who God has made righteous deep inside and who know always how much they need him. See, when we look at our hearts, like really, it's depressing, it's crushing. But when we look to Christ, it's liberating. Something we need to realize, righteousness that God requires, it's the righteousness that Christ alone provides. And we look to him, we come before him in humility, and we have our hearts out before us uh, in our hands. And we tell him, God, I admit that I have just been trying to, to do all the right things, but my heart has not been pure before you. My heart has not been humble before you. So forgive me, but also change me. Change my heart. Give me a new, clean heart. A heart that cares about the things that you care about. A heart that is aware of your presence. A heart that beats in line with yours. And he will. That's why he saved us. He didn't save us to just become smarter sinners, like find all the loopholes. He saved us to become like someone. He saved us to become transformed and sanctified and become more and more like someone, his son, Jesus And so I would urge you to start just today by answering this question. Who are you becoming? Like, let's just get real. Like, I don't know how perfect and how polished your life looks. Well, I don't know how, you know, on the outwards, how broken and how hopeless things seem. When you look inside, when you examine your heart, where is your hope? Where is your attention? What is the posture of your heart before God? Who are you becoming? Are you becoming a smarter sinner? Right? Are you becoming someone who just knows so well now how to go through the motions, but really your heart is callous towards God? Or are you becoming more like his son? Right, someone who is humble before God the Father. Someone who is dependent on God. Someone who realizes uh, that it's not enough to just go through the motions. But someone who cares deeply about a pure heart. A heart that really does put others before yourself. A heart that isn't consumed by bitterness and anger. And lets that stay there. A heart that is righteous, a heart that truly loves. Are you becoming more like his son? And what would it take for you even now to humble yourself and to begin to look inside? Right, to take that time to be broken over the state of your heart, yet be amazed at the cross. 
And I want to urge you today, don't let this just go over your head. Like, Don't just you know, tune out after this and then go back to just doing what you're doing, living the way that you are. Who you're becoming matters. It matters so much to the Lord, and it should matter to you. And if you're not becoming who the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who saved you, if you're not becoming who he wants you to become, then it's not the right person. It's as simple as that. And, you know, this week, I, I would highly encourage and urge you to take some time to examine your heart. But I'm wondering even now, as we just finish up, if we could just take a minute we can just be silent to come before the Lord just in humility uh, to not just be fixated about our external behavior and our actions, all the good things we've done, all the bad things we've avoided. But can we really examine our hearts, the motives that we have? Can we bring them in light of who God is? And can we keep doing that for the rest of the week? So let's just take a minute to do that. God, um, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this wonderful reminder that you care about who we're becoming so much more than what we could do for you. You saved us to become and not to just do. You saved us to become more and more uh, just resembling your holy and righteous Son. And Lord, we acknowledge to you that our hearts are not often right. Uh, even, Lord, even our tears of repentance, Lord, are stained with selfish motives. Lord, our hearts Betray us. Our hearts give us up to you who can see everything. 
And so all the more, Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he fulfilled the law perfectly, that he lived the perfect life that we could never live. And his righteousness, which has nothing to do with our own righteousness, has nothing to do with our keeping of the law. We look to him. We put our trust and our faith in him. His righteousness comes over us like a white robe, like a garment that is completely unblemished. And the way that you see us is clean and whole. And Lord, I just pray that as we examine our hearts, Lord, by the help of your Spirit, Lord, you would change our hearts. By the help of your Spirit, Lord, you would help us to grow more and more every single day into the perfection of your Son. We're not there yet, and we won't ever be in this lifetime. But every day, Lord, I do pray that you would take us more and more into the image of him. Lord, convict our hearts. Lord, help us to know beyond any doubt that our behavior, our external righteousness is not enough. Help us to come before you every single day, dependent on your grace, asking that you would make your heart known to us, that you would make Jesus known to us all over again so that our hearts would be transformed and changed and renewed. And Lord, help us to do this um, in light of who you are, but also just in light of this world. Help us to be those who are not hypocritical, but those who keep the law, uh, both with our behavior and our hearts, so that we would witness to you, that others would see us and see something beyond the external layer, and that they would want to know what that is all about. That, that would be the answer to this question of what does it mean to be good? Christ crucified and Christ's righteousness being bestowed upon lawbreakers like us. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.